Welcome in, everybody. Thanks for joining us for hour number two of Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Bean. That'd be me. Yeah, we got a, a great second hour here for you. We're going to go ahead and dive into it with uh, now National Republican Party co-chair and South Carolina Republican Republican Party chair, Drew McKissick. Welcome, sir, to the program. Glad you're back from California. I, I was afraid they might keep you out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It would kind of be a uh, would kind of be like a sentence, wouldn't it? If you yeah, stay out there. I mean, there are a lot of people trying to get out of there and coming this way and everywhere else, as you know. So, and glad to be home. Yeah, well, so I would just be kind of afraid that they'd figure out, you know, this guy's hurting us everywhere he goes. So progressive. So we just need to hold him <laughs> out here. But uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the whole thing. I mean, you're out there for a week, right? Basically. Um, yeah. And this is, yeah, uh, uh, you know, Republicans powwowing with one another. And, of course, uh, Rona McDaniel was elected to, as I understand it, an unprecedented fourth term as chair of the Republican National mm-hmm. Committee. And she uh, did pretty well. I mean, she got, uh, what, 111 votes, I think, uh, to be reelected. So pretty good. Yeah, so uh, it's a uh, uh, we, we do three meetings a year. Uh, and this uh, was the meeting, the winter meeting, once every two years, where we do elections for national party officers. Uh, and uh, we had um, there were 168 members of the committee, and as you point out, uh, Ronna was running for fourth term. Uh, she had uh, uh, support, you know, generally speaking, from about 110 plus members around the country. Uh, you had, you know, uh, a competition there for that office. And, you know, competition is a good thing. Uh, some folks, you know, wanted to see some things addressed and changed. And, you know, some disappointment in some of the uh, elections around the country, as you and I have talked about. Of course, we know here in South Carolina we didn't have any of those problems. Again, as we have pointed out, I mean, we, we know how to win here. Uh, had the best election victory in 150 years for Republicans here in South Carolina this past November. But, Unfortunately, everywhere around the country is not South Carolina. You may have noticed, uh, and a lot of other people have noticed that they have been escaping and coming to South Carolina, as we've talked about. Um, but in, over the course of the meeting, uh, you know, obviously folks are campaigning for the job. It goes over several days. You had candidate forums that are, you know, uh, uh, private to the members, uh, so they can ask questions and hear from the candidates directly. Uh, and at the end of the day, I think there were 51 people who voted for Harmeet Dillon. Uh, he was out in California, 111, I believe, voted for Ronald McDaniel. She was reelected. And then we had the co-chairs race. As you pointed out, I ran for co-chair. Oh, wait, 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 huh? Mike Lindell got four yes, votes. We, we don't, oh, wait, that's right. That's right. That's right. We, I forgot. We forgot, the, forgot the My Pillow guy. And so. I, I, well, and, you know, I think maybe he could have done better if when everyone had gotten there, we had had a free pillow on our beds, you know, in the hotel. That would have and helped. The problem is, you know, I'm, I've used actually one of his pillows for about eight to ten years now, uh, and I would have appreciated it because, you know, despite the fact that it was a swanky high-end hotel, they've got those, you know, really soft, sinky pillows. Yeah. I just hate and despise those. I usually just grab one of the little pillows off of the sofa because they're usually firmer and tuck it up underneath my neck. But anyway, look, I'd take the pillows. I'd take the pillows off my bed, Drew, when I travel. The problem is I'd have three suitcases to put them all in. So that's why I don't, (laughs) I I just, I just go deal with whatever the hotel's got. Okay. I'm sorry. Back to business. Yes. That's okay. 
Well, so had uh, the race to co-chair. It was myself and two other individuals, chairman of North Carolina, the chairman of Indiana, two other good guys I've known for a good number of years now. Uh, and, you know, uh, unlike, I would say, some of the other races that we had, uh, ours was a very well-run race. Well-run race. Uh, it was, um, uh, you know, all clean, if you will, nothing nasty involved in the campaign. Uh, you know, everybody was fine, got along with one another, said good things about one another, and just really all just put ourselves out there in a positive way for what we wanted to do and let the, uh, uh, the folks uh, on the committee, you know, decide. Right. And, uh, fortunately, I've got a lot of good friends on the committee who uh, no other members have for a while and put together a good uh, campaign operation uh, and went three ballots. Uh, and on the final ballot, I believe the margin was uh, 90 votes for myself and 76 votes for the chairman from Indiana. So uh, the result is now uh, I get an extra title. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, but look, and well, a lot got, more work, I would we've think. Got serious stuff to do. Absolutely. More yeah. work to do, but serious stuff to do. I mean, because really part of what we want to do uh, is a couple of things. And I can candidly say uh, half of my support. Uh, came from folks who supported Rana, and a little over half of it, I would say, came from folks who supported Harmeet, uh, which puts wow. me in a good position to build some bridges around yes. the country with that's folks in the party. Yes. I think that's going to be helpful. Uh, and uh, the chairwoman, she's acknowledged that as well uh, and wants to work together to do that. Because, you know, no matter what anybody thought going in, the elections are over now. You know, we've got party leadership uh, in that last two years. That means now our job is to put the campaign operation together to go win. That's our job. That's what we've been elected to do, to work together to go win. Uh, and we've all stated publicly and talked privately that, that is exactly what we intend to do. Yeah, and, and, and what specifically are the responsibilities of the co-chair? So how and, and how will you being co-chair of the National Party and being chairman of the Republican Party here in South Carolina, you intend to keep doing that. So how, how do those things uh, mesh, and can you do both, I guess? Sure. So, well, first thing, as far as South Carolina, we have a fantastic, I mean, fantastic state party staff. And you know, you've interacted oh, yeah. with a lot of yourself. Absolutely. Uh, we got the, the most senior state, uh, state executive director of a Republican Party in the nation here in South Carolina. She does a fantastic job. She actually runs the place. I just work there. Uh, and uh, the rest of the staff around the state, the field staff, do a fantastic job. And the results speak for themselves, quite frankly. Yes. Um, and are actually bringing on more staff. Uh, and plus, this puts me in a position to be able to bring on more staff because the title actually will make it even easier to raise money here in South Carolina to help yeah. fund other things that the state party can do here. Um, in a national sense, so in terms of the job, the duties and responsibilities, you know, first off, a lot of it is defined by the chairman. As you work with the chairman, sometimes on special projects that uh, the chairman will, will lay out. Uh, but, you know, first and foremost, though, you're elected by the other members, just like the chairman. And the members expect you to provide, uh, you know, private, honest, frank advice to the chairman about what needs to be done. Uh, and then, you know, in public, work together to make sure we get it done. Uh, beyond that, there's some priorities that I laid out in my campaign uh, that we've talked about, with, uh, state party development around the country. Uh, some of the reasons why we had, you know, poor showings in some states uh, was because of, you know, lack of state party infrastructure and resources that ended up uh, hurting our candidates in the end. Uh, that's not the only reason why, but that's one of the reasons why. 
uh, that needs to be addressed. The, the, the turnover for the average state chairman in America is actually 18 months. They don't even last a full term on average. Since I've been elected in May of 17, 44 states have elected at least one, sometimes two new chairmen. Right. And that kind of turnover is bad for an organization, and it, it, it needs to be addressed, and I've talked about that a lot. Uh, also, things dealing with fundraising, small-dollar fundraising, and then election integrity issues. You know, some of the states that have issues with those laws that Democrats have passed as COVID came around or judicial fiats or regulatory changes, uh, you know, those that we can change and fight to change, we need to fight to change. But where we can't change them, we've got to take those rules and we've got to be better than the Democrats at actually winning under those rules. So exactly. places where ballot harvesting is legal, even though we don't like that, we've got to be better at ballot harvesting than yes. they are. Yes. Uh, you know, whatever those rules may be, because losers do not make policy. You know, you, <laughs> you've been involved in this for a long time. Yes. And so, uh, until you can actually make changes, uh, you've got to fight according to the rules and you've got to win. Well, and, and we've demonstrated. I mean, it, it, you look at uh, 2018 in the midterms. Uh, well, actually, 2016, uh, some Republicans in California lost their seat that was in, in a pretty solid Republican yeah. district. Uh, 2018, they ballot harvested because that's what the Democrats were right. doing. That was legal in California, and they took back their seats. So it doesn't right. make sense right. for Republicans to sit on the sidelines and say, "Well, that's not right." Yep. And when it's being, uh, you you've got to get in so that you can change the policy by winning the elections. That's very important. Yeah, and, and, and one example is the early voting. You know, we've got a lot of folks who say, "Well, we don't want to do early voting. We want to vote on election day," and that's great. Uh, well, you know, we, in order to the election integrity law we passed here last year, we created early voting here in South Carolina for the first time, right. 12 days of it. But it's just like voting on regular election day. You go to uh, an appointed polling place, two or three in each county, where you vote in person with your photo ID. Uh, and so under that process, we here in South Carolina, unlike a lot of other states, because we promoted it as Republicans, we beat Democrats on early voting here in South Carolina. Yeah, fast uh, elections for that first right. time, and Democrat, and in other states again, Democrats beat Republicans on early voting. Yeah, and and I think it is a, it's a mindset. Uh, once you change the mindset, once you make this, you know, uh, at, at, and you set it up in a way that makes mm -hmm. sense to Republicans. You know, you early voting is right. never going to make sense if it's all about mail-in ballots and extended deadlines and, right. and people being able to Correct. walk in early voting and not follow the same procedures. But you set it up correctly, and guess what? Republicans right. are going to show up and support it because they're about right Please. policy. So. Excellent. Yeah. Good, good stuff. Yep. Listen, thank you. I, I, congratulations. Um, you know, I've, thank you. I've long said, and I no, don't make any secret about this. I, I just think you're a, one of the best leaders that we have in terms of strategy and looking at situations and making the situation on the ground better for people that share conservative values. Uh, you've demonstrated that here in South Carolina, and I'm glad you're going to have the opportunity to have him input on the national level, because I think that makes us better. Yeah. So uh, we'll look well, forward to our continued I sincerely conversation. appreciate yeah. it, and I am looking forward to it. Yep. Talk to you later, my friend. Fantastic. Yep. Thanks, Don. Yes, sir. The Biden Justice Department under Merrick Garland is, um, I mean, they, they overreach. That's what they do. And they overreach to satisfy the whims of those who are far-left progressives that despise anything that has to do with Christianity or 
uh, anybody that would think that marriage should be between a man and a woman, anybody that thinks that traditional marriage should be the standard, anybody that thinks that life in the womb is precious, I mean, they want to use, because of political disagreements and philosophical disagreements about life and relationships, they want to use the Justice Department to enforce their view of these things because they don't think anybody else has a right to have an opinion. And the pressure that they put on the Justice Department caused them to overreach in the case of Mark Hawk. If you remember, uh, the DOJ charged him with two counts of violating the FACE Act, Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances, when outside a Pennsylvania abortion clinic, Hawk allegedly pushed a pro-abortion activist who was allegedly antagonizing his son. Now, I think it's pretty clear that both of those things happened. But there was no—it it, it was—Mark Hawk was not trying to prevent people from entering the clinic. The Justice Department—in fact, local authorities, when they looked at this and there was a complaint raised against him, they decided, nope, nothing to see here. We're not going to file any charges. So then the federal government steps into Pennsylvania, into a local matter, and uses the FACE Act, which was designed basically back when, um, you know, pro-life protesters were laying down on the road blocking the entrance to an abortion clinic, that kind of thing. Because it used to be, you know, that some of that went on here in Greenville, um, I remember. You know, they were, there'd be, particularly over at Lawrence Road, there were, one time there were, I think it ended up being 3,000, but it was because that a judge had said that we couldn't pray on the sidewalk. So that became the big issue that a bunch of people got arrested for, was praying on the sidewalk, because they made some kind of requirement that you had to be 12 feet away and to pray, and, um, you know, the, it, that, that all eventually got thrown out. Because you can't tell people they can't pray. It is First Amendment right. So, you know, but the same thing here, that, that law, my point, being that that law was to address the mass um, blocking of access to a clinic or one person standing in the middle of the road. Could be one person. Doesn't have to be a group of people. But whatever, it's the intent is to keep people from being able to exercise what, is, in this country, a lawful act, even though many of us, including me, believe it's the murder, the taking of an innocent life. So they passed this law, and they tried to apply it. Then the federal government comes back, and because there was an altercation between Mark and a protester who was had a reputation for being nasty, who was apparently accosting his son in some way, then the federal government decided to step in and use this as an opportunity to teach Christians a lesson, which is, you you know, we don't get to use this FACE Act too much anymore, so we want to we, we use it now, and we're, we're going to grind this guy. We're going to make an example out of him. So the jury said, no, you're not, because they acquitted him on Monday of both Department of Justice charges. Uh, Peter Breen, who's with the Thomas More Society, in fact, he's executive vice president and head of litigation, said in a statement, we, of course, are thrilled 
with the outcome. Mark and his family are now free of the cloud that the Biden administration threw upon them. And that's a good way to put that. Uh, this was this was unnecessary. It was completely out of order. It was used as an intimidation factor. And that's why you've got a, a subcommittee in the House right now investigating whether or not the Justice Department has been weaponized for a political purpose. That can never be. If you look at the symbol of justice in the United States, what do you have? Lady Justice holds the scales, but she's also blindfolded. The Biden administration doesn't have a blindfolded Justice Department. They've got a Justice Department binoculars looking for people that disagree with them, parents that show up at school board meetings, people who go stand, pray, and protest at abortion clinics. And this, this, was, this was purposely to send a message to the rest of the Christian community. You better be careful. You see what we did to Mark Hawk? We can come do that to you. And they descended on his house. I mean, I don't know, the, FBI surround the house, come inside. They the came inside. Kids are going, you know. They, they, they took wow. him into custody as if he was a major drug dealer or someone who was a mass murderer. It was, it was ridiculous. But all that was part of the play. It was part of the design to intimidate. Oh, this can happen to you. You have the FBI show up to your house early in the morning, drag you out of the house in front of your family. Breen previously told the Daily Signal that the Justice Department sent 20-plus heavily armed federal agents with shields and long guns to arrest Hawk in late September as his children watched. Hawk pled not guilty to the federal charges. His legal team argued that the Justice Department was violating the Constitution by engaging in viewpoint discrimination and selective prosecution, violating the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and the First Amendment's protection for the free exercise of religion. Quote, the Biden administration has filed two brazenly defective and discriminatory charges against Mark Hawk after the FACE Act, uh, under the FACE Act, and both should be dismissed, Breen said. Both counts allege that Mark Hawk interfered with a so-called volunteer abortion patient escort when in reality, Hawk had a one-off altercation with a man who harassed Hawk's minor son approximately 100 feet from the abortion business and across the street. Quote, this case is being brought solely to intimidate people of faith and pro-life Americans, Breen said. Um, his arrest sparked, this is coming from the article from the Daily Signal, which was written by Mary Margaret Olihan. Uh, his arrest sparked a national outcry against the Justice Department as conservatives point to the discrepancies between the DOJ's targeting of pro-lifers and its apparent unwillingness to pursue charges in the vast number of attacks on pro-life pregnancy centers and churches since the leak of the draft of Supreme Court opinion that uh, indicating that Roe v. Wade would soon be overturned. Now, the DOJ finally charged two radical activists with attacking a pro-life pro Florida clinics last week, last week, and we reported that to you. But I agree with the assessment that this is a huge victory for freedom of speech for all Americans, and it's a complete embarrassment for the FBI and the DOJ because they're targeting peaceful 40 Days for Life volunteers, and in doing so, 
ignoring major crimes because it doesn't fit their template, their narrative, their agenda. They got slapped, and it's a good thing. Justice won out in this case. All right, a little bit of follow-up on Todd Starn's story about the police officer down in Georgia, police officer Jacob Kiersey. Um, He was placed on administrative leave after sharing his views on traditional marriage on Facebook. And this is what he wrote. I think it's important to know specifically. God designed marriage. Marriage refers to Christ and the church. That's why there is no such thing as thing as homosexual marriage. That's what he put on that's what he he posted. And he got a phone call from the police department's major Lee Sherrard ordering him to come to the office the following morning and turn in everything that he had that belonged to the city. Kiersey told the Daily Signal that he believed he was going to be terminated. When he arrived at the police station, the young officer met with Sherrod Hardy, um, Sherrod Hardy, Captain Nathan Jensen, and the police chief, Libby. He was told that he was being placed on administrative leave while the city investigated to see if he could keep his job. I was told that I was wise beyond my years and old soul and that they brag on me all the time, but I couldn't post things like that. Kiersey said Libby told him that his Facebook post on marriage was the same thing as saying the N-word and uh, blank all those homosexuals. Kiersey said his captain told him that his free speech was limited due to his position as a police officer, which is not true. After a week of paid administrative leave, Kiersey met again with the leadership of the police department. He says he was informed that he no longer was on administrative leave and would not be fired, but that he could not share opinions on social media that could be considered offensive. Kiersey says he was told he could post scripture verses, but could not speak, uh, could not work as one of the department's officers if he continued to share his interpretation or opinion on scripture if it was deemed offensive. Yeah, you don't have a right to express your religious freedom, your religious liberty. You don't have a right to talk about the Scripture publicly. I mean, what? These people are crazy. I mean, you can't. We're not there yet, folks. Progressives want us to be there, but they haven't been able to get us there because we've got a Supreme Court that believes in religious liberty. For four days after the date on the letter, January 17, Kiersey formally resigned from the police department. He said, I decided to resign because I just think it didn't think it was wise to go back and play their game. I didn't feel as if my command really had my back. Yeah, it's because they didn't have your back. They were more concerned about backlash from LGBTQ plus activists who raise a stink every time somebody disagrees with them on social media. And it's just that this time, You were expressing your belief in Scripture and your understanding of what that Scripture means, which you have the right to do. Um, So a little bit of follow-up. The police chief of Port Wentworth has now resigned. Police chief Matt Libby announced his retirement Monday less than a week after the Daily Signal reported that police officer Jacob Kiersey had been placed on administrative leave after sharing his views on traditional marriage. Now, there's this, this is coming from Virginia Allen at Daily Signal, and there's been nothing said about why Wentworth, uh, the police uh, chief, Libby, has announced his retirement. They don't, there's, they're not going to say anything. They're not going to connect these things. But I think it's pretty obvious 
that the way that Kiersey was treated was wrong and probably against police protocol because I can't imagine a police department having a written policy that denies somebody their free speech and their understanding of Scripture and their right to talk about it in public. What, what, is he te- what if he teaches Sunday school? What if uh, he gets in a conversation off-duty with somebody and he expresses his understanding that marriage is a, is a holy estate before God? What's going to happen? I mean, he could have faced the same thing. I think there was a, fire, a fireman that also— Oh, yeah, that was down kind in, of thing in, in Atlanta. Yeah, but he sued and won. And he won. I mean, it's unfortunate. Because he wrote a, a book. He was the chief. Yes. And he actually wrote a book about, you know, that was he was using for his church that was teaching on biblical issues. And he taught that marriage was biblically between a man and a woman, which it is. I mean, the Bible is clear about that. That, you know, and, and you know... <laughs> Go ahead. I was going to say, Tony, don't we need to really start understanding when we when we see these kind of stories and everything that what this is really doing, this is just circling around the church. They haven't gotten to the church yet, but right. they're trying to tighten that circle sure. because that is the key right there. Well, and we have people in the church who's perfectly willing to help them. Look, I, folks, I don't like to talk about other other ministers. Um, I'm in the ministry. I know how things can be taken wrong or taken out of context or misconstrued. And I, I'm very reluctant to dive into those things unless they're just so obvious. Then I feel like I have an obligation to point out that a pastor, regardless of how well-known he might be, is saying things that are not in line with the Word of God. Now, Andy Stanley's been in trouble before for things that he said about the Old Testament, for instance. And he said, we didn't, we didn't need the Old Testament for today. You know, that's actually a church history heresy. There were those, um, Mar- uh, let's see, Marcinism was the belief that the Old Testament and New Testament had a different God that the God of the Old Testament was not the God of the New Testament, and the Old Testament needed to be done away with. Now, Andy Stanley didn't come out and say there was a different God in the Old Testament, I don't think, but he did come out and say that the Old Testament was not what we needed to talk about today. Now, we need to talk about the whole counsel of the Word of God, but let me tell you what he did recently that is just, I I mean, I tried to give him the benefit of the doubt. You've heard me do this before, but I can't because he basically in a video said that the faith of LGBT people was better than most of his own congregation. Um, The clip of Stanley, an influential pastor of the North Point Community Church in Alpharetta, Georgia, and the leader of the North Point, of North Point Ministries comes from North Point's Drive Conference, where Stanley told churchgoers that any LGBTQ individual who continues to go to church has more faith than a lot of you. Quote, a gay person who still wants to attend church after the way they've been treated, I'm telling you, they have more faith than I do, Stanley said. They have more faith than a lot of you do. Now, I'm going to read a statement here 
that uh, was put out by, look and see who this is, His Kingdom Enterprises, David Hoffman. Uh, he's from Tuscan, Arizona. And I, th- I think his statement says what I would say. I think he just probably says it better. So here's what Hoffman said in response to Andy Stanley. Stanley's attempt to magnify the faith of openly LGBT individuals over straight people is totally pandering to the dictates of a secular pagan American culture and a rejection of biblical truth. He also said his most recent stance can be summed up by saying he believes gay people in his church have more faith than him and the majority of his congregation because they're willing to come to church even though historically Christian churches have not been accepting of homosexuality. And there's a reason for that. Homosexuality is a sin according to the Word of God. I know what the culture says. I know what the law says. But I'm not going to compromise what God said for those things. I'm not going to go after people who are homosexuals or practicing uh, a homosexual lifestyle. I I have no, all, all I would like to do is get them to embrace the truth about the lifestyle that they've embraced. But, you know, I'm also not going to sit here and say on the radio or affirm that. LGBTQ plus behavior is biblical in any sense of the word. The United Methodist Church has split over this. 1,800 congregations have left because they've decided that if their denomination is going to accept and promote unbiblical practices, then they can't be a part of it. And I, I respect them for that. You know, this, this divide within Christianity is going to continue. They're going to be those who read the Word of God, understand its plain, unambiguous meaning, and they're going to defend it and stand by it. They're going to speak it in an attitude of love, not in hatred, not in condemnation, but speak. You you know, I get it. Our country has decided, the Supreme Court has ruled that same-sex marriage is the same as traditional marriage, that two men, two women can marry, and it means the same thing as traditional marriage. Well, I respectfully disagree. The Supreme Court cannot dictate to God about marriage since marriage was invented and given as a gift by God for a specific purpose, and that purpose was to order society It's for procreation. It's for the mutual blessing and benefit of husbands and wives, and it creates an environment called the family where values are passed along that makes society stable. And all you have to do is look around to see what happens when we destabilize culture and society by embracing non-biblical principles and pushing them out there as if they're true. So, you know, right now, um, look, uh, a Christian point of view is losing, but it, it doesn't matter if we lose in the culture because we are on the right side of eternity on this. We're defending God's Word, and through the ages, <laughs> we join a long list of Christians who have defied the government and stood by biblical principles. And when I say defy, I don't mean openly. You don't, you, you don't see us out in the street anywhere trying to um, go against 
the government. But what we're saying is, you may say that this is right. We have to say what God says is right. And that's what we have to maintain and continue to live by if we're going to serve the Lord, honor him, and bring him glory, which is what we're called to do. Okay, uh, just a couple of things here as we wrap up the show today. David French, a lot of you have heard me talk about him uh, on this program. He's one of the best writers out there in terms of the way that he communicates. A lot of his thinking about issues that relate to the church and politics is good and helpful, and it calls us to a place of introspection and sort of examining what our motives are as the body of Christ when it comes to political engagement. And I think that has been very helpful. But over the years, and I've been following David French for a while, um, over the years, David has just continued to move more and more in the direction of becoming a critic of people that, in my view, don't deserve the back of his hand. Um, he's he's uber-critical of the conservative church in America, and some of his criticisms we should take to heart. But when you become, when you get to the point that that's all you can see is the bad parts, then it begins to come off as a little bit of self-righteousness, um, and he's been he's been writing articles for the Atlantic, and I subscribed to the Atlantic for a long time because again they're writing, understanding the way that the left thinks, and 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 there were some articles in the Atlantic that were filled with a lot of information that I couldn't get other places. I mean, at least I wasn't getting it. But ultimately, I canceled my subscription to The Atlantic because I just couldn't take it. I mean, they continued to primarily attack. I mean, every day I would get a list of articles, which was kind of convenient because they would text me or, uh, like, I'd have a list of things. Here's what The Atlantic, good morning, here's what The Atlantic is tracking today. Here are the articles that we recommend. And it made it easy for me to pick and choose and all of that. I, I liked the way they did that. But I just noticed more and more they were just becoming a mouthpiece for progressives. There was very little conservative thought. Now, David French, to his defense, when he wrote for The Atlantic, his voice was certainly much more conservative than anybody else over there. Um, and, but you can't, you can't constantly swim in those waters without having some of that rub off on you. Same thing now is true for him because it's been announced that he's still going to be doing the Dispatch, which is his website. His They've got a podcast, and um, he does a website where they have commentary for various people who weigh in on conservative thought. That's That's the purpose. But he's now announced that he's going to become – a columnist for the New York Times. And when I saw that, the first thought was, well, you've been moving toward the New York Times for the last several years. I guess it just is a natural place for you to land. 
Um, I, this is my hope, okay? What I want to happen, and I don't know if this is going to happen because I just – I don't have – complete confidence in David French anymore. I did at one time. I'll be the first to admit it. I'm hoping that he'll, he will become a conservative voice at the Times and that he will bring some sanity to what they write over there and that instead of having column after column, editorial column after editorial column, I should say, that just bashes everything that most of you listening to this radio program would agree to me is important, that he will be a voice of reason and a voice of dissent. I'm afraid that he's going to move more into the direction of supporting the progressive voice. And I, look, he, some of the, when he would write for the dispatch, a lot of times he would include at the end, he said, here's a great worship song. You need to listen to this. It really touched me. And every time, I mean, it's been something amazing. He would recommend a book, and, and I would go, okay, I want to see what that – and usually I would end up buying the book and reading it. So, But I don't, I don't get this other than if, if he's genuinely going over there and they're going to let him write – according to his conscience, and he's going to defend the Christian worldview in the middle of the New York Times, God bless him. But, and that I'd say the same for the Atlantic. Now, he's going to keep the dispatch going, but I've, you know, I had a subscription to the dispatch for a long time, but I canceled it back in December because I finally just came to the point where I'd try to listen to their podcast and I just found them to be a lot of the things that they believe, I believe. But they're, they're, they go out of their way to be critical of people that don't believe it with, in the same way that they do. I think that's the best way I know to put it. And I find that to be offensive in the same way that I find that the LGBTQ plus community, you have to say what they say or they're going to label you a homophobe and a bigot. Well, I'm not going to say things the way they say. And that goes for people that are on the right that have good principles, but they put out a standard that calls too many good people into question, in my view. So I hope David French does a good job over at the Times, New York Times. We need conservative voices. I'm not opposed to conservatives having a platform in a liberal setting. In fact, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be salt and light in the middle of the darkness that we find so that we can roll it back. But we don't roll it back with a match lit. I mean, we need to roll it back with a searchlight. Okay? And that's what I'm hoping that he will do. But I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to pray for him because I think that we should want him. He's brilliant. He's a great writer. He can influence a lot of people. And having that platform, people are going to read that that would never read conservative thought anywhere. But because he shows up in the New York Times, they're going to read it. All of those are good things as long as David French holds to the point where he just doesn't take every opportunity to undermine something he doesn't wholly agree with.
That's the best way I know to say that. Uh, okay, sad news today. Uh, Cindy Williams passed away. Uh, she was 75 years old. She played, of course, um, er, uh, Shirley opposite Penny Marshall's Laverne on Laverne and Shirley, which aired from, let's see, how long? It was a long time. It, it spanned 1976 to 1983. So, um, what, nine years? Is that, that's four? Seven. Seven years, yeah. So, and it was, at, at one time, it was the most popular show in the country. When it was at its peak, uh, it was sitting at the top of the ratings, the Nielsen ratings, just about every week. Um, and Cindy Williams was in other films. She was in... Um, had some great directors. Uh, she worked with George Lucas. And she worked with Ron Howard. She worked, I mean, you know, um, it's just, it's, it's, it's a sad thing. I mean, she was in American Graffiti, for example. That was when she worked with George Lucas, and she was in the movie with Ronnie Howard. He yet to become the director that he would become. But, um, you know, we're... We're losing a lot of these icons from the 70s. They're passing from the scene. And um, just it makes us, what it does is makes us look back a little bit, uh, makes us a little nostalgic. Shirley was actually, and Laverne and Shirley, she was sort of the straight-laced character, the conservative character. And Laverne was the, you know, she was kind of the out-there girl, so to speak, um, so, anyway, just passing that along, letting you know that Cindy Williams passed away at 75. Her, her family said she passed away after a brief illness. We don't know what that is, uh, what that was, but we need to pray for the family. All right, tomorrow um, I want us to get into a column by Nate Hockman that's posted today at National Review um, because one of my heroes of the faith in the 21st century is Jack Phillips of the Masterpiece Cake Shop in Colorado. And this is a, a pretty long column. We don't have time to get into it now, but it goes into all of the problems, all of the, the persecution that Jack Phillips has faced because of his faith in Colorado. And it's continuing. Supreme Court ruled in his favor. Doesn't matter because the Supreme Court was not willing at that time to expand their decision beyond the Colorado Civil Rights Commission animus toward him. That's what they focused on. He's still in court. Had a court rule against him um, just recently because they're trying to force him to bake a transgender cake. And what the hope is that a, court, a case that's going to appear before the Supreme Court later once it gets decided, which we believe it will come down on the side of religious liberty, that it will be enough to get Jack Phillips out of court, and maybe he can just be a baker in Colorado, which, and a servant of Jesus Christ. That's all he's ever wanted to be. So we're going to talk about that some tomorrow, along with whatever else is in the news. We hope you'll join us at 7 o'clock and tell some people about the show today.